हेलो पीपल गुड इवनिंग गुड नाइट आई डोंट नो 12:46 सो या गुड मॉर्निंग गुड मॉर्निंग फॉर ऑल या अगेन एज यूजुअल वी डोंट रियली हैव अ वेरी कंक्रीट आइडिया ऑफ व्हाट वी आर गोइंग टू बी टॉकिंग अबाउट वी वर रैम्बलिंग अबाउट सम थिंग्स लाइक द आइकनल अप्रोक्सिमेशन एंड कॉजैलिटी इन क्वांटम ग्रेविटी एंड ऑल ऑफ दैट एंड मे बी एट द एंड वी विल टॉक अबाउट द म्यूऑन जी माइनस 2 रीसेंट डेवलपमेंट्स इन द म्यूऑन जी माइनस 2 but uh chetan i think you should probably first quickly review uh this iconal approximation whatever you talked about it before mm-hmm. i discuss it in the quantum gravity context right. so uh, the iconal so okay like everything it just comes from optics all these uh, like it's a very strange thing that a lot of things a uh, uh, lot of recent uh, developments in quantum field theory turned out to be already discovered in the field of optics mm-hmm. or in some uh, strange russian journal or something Uh, like that's a very troubling fact but uh, keeping that in mind the point is that uh, in optics what people realized was that uh, so optics is essentially a very uh, low energy limit of quantum electrodynamics but the point is that in uh, regular electrodynamics we know that the source uh, term uh, is essentially just the charge coupling to the uh, a current and the current is essentially just the velo- uh, like it's just the char- uh, velocity of the moving charge or whatever we are so it's a very simple term j mu mu where the j mu is just uh, some like proportional to x dot mu right and where x is the position of your uh, moving charge now uh, this actually turns out to be the source term correctly but it's the uh, like it's the lower uh, like it's the a low energy form of the source term so if you consider the entire quantum electrodynamic theory you realize that this is just the first order term uh, or the uh, uh, lowest order term that can act as a source then you can have uh, like uh, your regular uh, quantum processes that can also act as a sources for higher order processes or higher order loops so the point is that if you just look at the low energy limit uh, or which is uh, also known as this iconal limit in uh, optics Uh, your uh, what you have is just your charges coupling to uh, your currents uh, now the reason this is interesting is because uh, uh, actually this was realized a long time back uh, in 1970s by weinberg that if you consider a, a general s matrix with some n external legs and one of those legs has an external boson that is being emitted then in the low energy limit uh, if the external boson that is emitted has a spin 1 which means it it can be a photon or a gluon uh, what you get is uh, essentially just a restatement of the conservation of charge so what you get is that your charges uh, like the sum of all the incoming charges in your feynman diagram is equal to the sum of all the charges outgoing essentially just the conservation of charge uh, but the uh, like this was like cool but the more interesting uh, like the more interesting thing that uh, that could be derived from the similar process was that if you just consider a spin 2 particle instead of a spin 1 particle being emitted and in that case what you get is uh, uh, something that's uh, just the equivalence principle so you essentially get that the the charge in this case which is the coupling to your uh, gravitons or the spin 2 field that uh, coupling is essentially the same for any any particle which is just a restatement of the equivalence principle so essentially what weinberg found out was that in the like if you just consider low energy limits of s matrices it just gives you like very profound uh, idea like the very profound things that you take for granted for these particular theories for example in case of spin 1 theories it gives you the conservation of charge 
in spin two theories it gives you the equivalence principle which can which can be thought of as the uh, like starting point for writing a, a gravitational theory i mean i think this was the uh, einstein's original yeah there was beautiful the, idea whatever yeah, he had yeah. the equivalence principle was that thing and you essentially just get that for free uh, but uh, again uh, what uh, like amartya raised a very interesting point here that uh, this equivalence principle that or uh, all these uh, results that we are deriving from the low energy limits of these theories may not hold true for uh, the entire quantum gravitational theory for certain reasons i had a mild just so i understand you correctly the thing is when you write when you couple a source term to a gauge field mm-hmm. you write a term like jmu amu mm-hmm. you implicitly require that your jmu is conserved right yeah because otherwise the theory is anomalous uh, but uh, but this information does not enter when you are just looking at some scattering amplitude that has an exactly. external photon so if you if you start with the lagrangian where you have a jmu amu term then you sort of have this information that this jmu has to be conserved for uh, just basic your regular if the lagrangian has to satisfy certain equations of motion you get it for free essentially but if you do not have a lagrangian so the point was that you just start off with a, a general s matrix with no no uh, uh, assumptions about what the underlying theory might be all you require is that the spin of the particle being emitted is spin 1 that's all you need to derive this conservation of charge idea in this approach so like it's it's but do you require any other information like what's the mass of this particle or something because no it's considered the massless so it's, so it's massless considered particle. a gauge boson so basically hmm. you're just uh, rederiving the fact that a gauge field must be coupled to a conserved current yeah essentially it's a rederivation of yeah correct but the uh, like the weinberg's interesting idea was not about the it was about gravitons when it was about the gravitons so i think it's the paper is called on something low energy limits of photons and gravitons uh, like very highly cited paper mm. it's a very interesting paper by weinberg but the more interesting part was that uh, i think in 2015 what uh, so essentially in this paper uh, weinberg had uh he had so uh, this uh, all this analysis that he does for the s matrix elements he just does it to the uh, first order in the coupling which is just the lower uh, lowest energy limit or the leading order terms and he gets uh, this equivalence principle and uh, some related results but what uh, recently i think stromberger realized was i think with some other people uh, he they realized that uh, actually if you consider the uh, like the first order and second order terms here uh, so Uh, okay so firstly we need to see what happens at the leading order so at the leading order what weinberg showed was that uh, at the leading order the s matrix just fact uh, the amplitude actually just factorizes it gives you a lower point amplitude times some factor uh, which is just a, a function of the emitted particle so that's why you get all these uh, interesting limits where uh, you get this conservation of charge and all that because it's just dependent on the uh, uh, the a boson which is uh, for which you are taking the low energy limit but what uh, these uh, so he had ignored the higher order terms uh, weinberg uh, which makes sense because in the low energy limit these terms do not contribute uh, but if the the cool thing was that if you consider the uh, like if you actually consider the uh, first order and the second order terms also the subleading terms essentially uh, you realize that this factorization property holds for them also so the s matrix actually factorizes where and now the factorization term is not just the leading order term it's uh, some of these uh, leading order and the subleading terms and uh, uh, what 
was more interesting, uh, like uh, this factorization property was interesting, but this was also known, I think, by Gelman and others in 1980s. But the interesting part was that these, uh, the coefficients of the subleading term seem to be the generators of some very large algebra. And uh, the I think Strominger's point was that this uh, large algebra is, um, may actually be the, uh, like it, it may be an actual symmetry of the gravitationless matrix. Mm. But that's like a different program. But yeah, but I think you had some point about uh, why these low energy results may not be, like they may not be considered to hold true in quantum gravity. Yeah. Uh, so Chetan just concluded a, a very nice review of what the iconal limit means physically. Uh, in context of quantum field theories, uh, what the iconal limit basically means is uh, when you write down your amplitudes as functions of you know your Mandelstam variables, let's say S and T, then you're basically treating it like some sort of a deflectionless limit. So you have very high energies uh, of your incident particles and emitted particles. And for such high energies, you can assume that the deflection, the, the, the deflection from the impact parameter is not too much. It amounts to taking a limit T by S goes to zero. And uh, there were historically uh, in quantum gravity, the iconal limit was uh, discussed by I think Cheng and Ma and uh, I think a few other papers at around the same time. Um, and they were incredibly obscure papers because they involved, like Cheng said, uh, about 16 months and 2000 pages of calculations. <laughs> but uh, the idea was that you look at a certain class of diagrams called ladder diagrams. So let's say you have two scalars scattering into two scalars exchanging a graviton and then this graviton is exchanged in a t-channel and then you just keep adding more and more um, gravitons, loops. more and more graviton loops. So that's basically what the iconal limit um, amounts to. And the thing with the iconal limit is, by the way, uh, it's Sixon and Zuber, I think, the people who wrote the QFT book, mm -hmm. the famous QFT book, they had a very, very elegant proof of, like a one-page proof of the iconal limit. Mm -hmm. And it involved, uh, it's only true for renormalizable theories, but it involved um, basically a very cute operator identity, uh, something like e to the a plus b is uh, a times some integral over e to the minus a t, some, some operator e to the minus b t or something. And using this uh, operator identity, you can actually prove it very rigorously, the iconal limit. And uh, <clears throat> the thing now is in quantum gravity, uh, there's two kind of uh, asymptotic behaviors for our amplitudes. One is this iconal limit, the deflectionless limit. And the other is the regular limit, where you basically consider the effects of higher spin particles being exchanged. Um, uh, so that's basically a very high energy effect. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, because quantum gravity is not renormalizable, you can never be sure if the iconal limit is like actually the leading order term. There's very good reason to believe, because like, for example, you said, uh, for example, you said deriving the equivalence principle at leading order from mm -hmm. these iconal approximations. Since we believe that the equivalence principle is a you know, really true thing or something. And apparently it can be derived from the iconal limit. It's a very good uh, indication that to leading order, whatever quantum effective field theory we have for gravity is correct. Mm. Uh, and the fact that we cannot renormalize the rest of it is, I mean, insignificant, uh, at least when it comes to computing like physical quantities. Yeah. Uh, but in, but again, formally in quantum gravity, you can never be sure of this. And Maldasena, I think in 2013, had a very interesting paper with the couple of other people I don't remember um, and the paper was called uh, constraining the graviton three-point function using causality now the idea is this uh, you want to consider theories of gravity that deviate from Einstein's gravity so let's say you add a Gauss bonnet term or something uh, well to begin with this Gauss bonnet term because it's higher operator like higher derivative it will have to be suppressed by some sort of an energy scale and the usual requirement is that I mean in effective field theories that it's suppressed by the Planck mass 
But here they assume that the weak coupling scale is actually the string scale because they actually want to compare their uh, constraints from what you get from string theory. And the weak coupling scale in, the st in string theory is actually much higher than Planck mass. So essentially what it's saying is that the coefficient of this operator is not a natural one in the sense mm -hmm. that uh, it's not order one. And then the idea is to consider, so Malleson and these people did the calculation in two ways. One was to actually consider like shockwave solutions mm. coming from such, sort of, from such a disturbance. And the other was to consider a scattering amplitude based uh, up thing with the Iconel approximation, which reproduces the shockwave results basically. Mm. And they showed that um, the, the, the point of their paper is the following. Uh, if you have a higher order, higher order derivative correction to uh, Einstein's theory of gravity, then this theory will always violate causality mm -hmm. unless there is a reggae behavior at high energies. Right. That was their point of the paper. So it basically said that if you're deviating from Einstein's gravity, then the only thing we sort of know of that is mm -hmm. consistent with this is string theory. Mm -hmm. Because we, string theory has this reggae behavior in the, at, at high energies. And that was the, the essential point of the paper. So you assume some term like this, you find some causality violations. There's many ways to do it. You do some uh, classical uh, causality analysis, like constructed dispersion relation or whatever. And the other way is to just look at, you know, unitarity properties of your scattering amplitude. And then one, you see that, um, that no local operators, no local curvature operators can remedy this causality violation. Mm -hmm. This is sort of to be expected because that's kind of the whole point of studying causality violations from these, you know, on-shell amplitudes like the three-point amplitude because because they're on-shell, they are insensitive to field redefinitions or whatever. Mm -hmm. So you cannot do an artificial field redefinition and introduce more local operators that might cancel this causality effect and render it unphysical. Yeah. So that's one reason people work with on-shell techniques these days because it takes away the whole uh, freedom in writing down a with field redefinitions and everything. Uh, but it was a very, you know, cute result that uh, it's always inconsistent with causality unless you have a reggae behavior at high energies, which is exactly what string theory tells you. And they made a lot of very interesting comments about uh, how this could, for example, uh, if there is such kind of, a, for example, in the if you want to talk of, you know, like phenomenological situations, mm -hmm. let's say during inflation, you had some kind of a higher derivative coupling. Then if this higher ed, uh, derivative coupling was itself was a source of gravitational waves, mm. and if these gravitational waves were ever detected, then this would immediately indicate the existence of higher spin particles during inflation, mm. if these gravitational waves are ever detected. So that's that, that would be one check of right. this string theory kind of uh, behavior. Uh, and th there's a lot of very interesting things when it comes to, you know, Vasily of gravity and large and gauge yeah, theories so and everything. Yeah, something like I have, like, I'm not very sure, like, I've read some papers about this. So, uh, like, uh, one thing is that uh, this higher spin theories are, like, very, very, uh, how do you say, uh, like, almost they are, uh, in some sense, you can be, say, like, it can be said that higher spin theories do not exist, and uh, there exist a lot of uh, very interesting proofs. Mm -hmm. uh, essentially of this so one thing is that uh, in the low energy limit you can show that like we can see there are no higher spin excitations like the maximum is spin 2 mm -hmm. uh, and uh, there is a proof by Weinberg I think uh, along the same lines as this uh, icon the low energy uh, theorems uh, this proof is that it's uh, actually just the same argument continued for one more spin so in the spin one case we saw that uh, essentially our, char our charge is just so we got something of the form uh, summation of all the incoming and outgoing charges is zero. Mm. In the case of spin two particles, what we get is summation of uh, these charges uh, times the corresponding moment as zero. And we also know that the uh, momentum is conserved. So all the charges will have to con uh, couple to the momentum uh, mm. like equally. That's the only possible uh, like solution to this constraint. 
but now if you go to spin 3 or higher you get uh, a very constant equation so you get something of the form summation of the particular charge times uh, product of two different momenta is equal to zero and the thing is that even if you have a moment of conservation here uh, the only possible solution to this constant equation is just that all the uh, couplings have, have to be zero mm. so this is just a low energy proof of the fact that you cannot have any spins higher than two spin two uh, in the like in the low energy limit at least so this is like a very troubling fact because uh, something like string theory predicts that there should be higher spin excitations but now the question is whether these higher spin excitations are fundamental or not I think mm. that is a very uh, big question in the science in theory field. Now, Vasiliev uh, claims to have a theory. So there is this Russian guy uh, called Vasi uh, some Vasiliev, who who wrote down a a very very complicated theory uh, uh, that involves a lot of differential geometry. So I could never understand any of it. But uh, his point was that uh, it's essentially just uh, like if it's called some unfolded dynamics or something. But the point is that you can write down a theory, consistent theory of uh, higher spin particles. Uh, you can have everything spin one, two, three, and all so on. You can even supersymmetrize it. And this point is that you can. Uh, so you just write down one theory, and then the same particular theory can be like you just have to tune some particular parameter. You can go from ADS to DS to mm. flat space. But even in Vasiliev's theory, I think the flat uh, in the flat space limit you do not get anything, uh, mm. any higher spin excitations. But uh, Vasiliev's theory seems to work for both the uh, ADS and DS case. But again, uh, this Vasiliev theory very interesting thing. But uh, it uh, so I think what string theory people tried to do was that if Vasiliev uh, his uh, theory of gravity is actually a correct theory, then it should also obey some holographic uh, mm -hmm. principles, which we sort of know that holography is like a signature of quantum gravity, essentially. Uh, so, uh, if you try to uh, like check uh, Vasiliev's theories, like the predictions from those, like some compute some correlators in Vasiliev's gravity theory, and I think you try to match it with the corresponding CFT results, you find a mismatch. So, I think that is uh, another like very troubling fact about Vasiliev's theory. But this higher spin thing is interesting because I I think I read some paper where it was uh, they tried to argue that if these higher spin particles they actually exist. Uh, then uh, you could probably argue that uh, dark matter they could like be some sort of dark matter candidates mm. because uh, like this Weinberg argument shows that uh, uh, mm. couplings of these high spin particles to spin one and spin two should not exist mm. and that's exactly what the dark sector is of the form like it probably does not couple to spin one uh, spin two is a bit like yeah. uh, tricky but uh, in general spin two is a bit uh, tricky like even spin two interactions like it's not very straightforward to argue. Uh, how spin two interaction should be? I think there there is a theorem by Weinberg and Witten, which just fails for spin two case. Mm. So for spin one case, you can show that Weinberg-Witten theorem holds. Uh, for higher spin, uh, you can show that uh, Weinberg-Witten theorem like the, it just uh, gives you the fact that in low energy limit there cannot be any higher spin particles. But for spin two it fails, and uh, for spin two you have to do some uh, like uh, argue a bit differently. Mm. Uh, so I think that's like that's a very interesting thing. I I don't know what's the solution to this higher spin puzzle. It seems that they should not exist. I mean, Weinberg's theorems are pretty strong. But uh, again, so there is also a very interesting uh, paper by some Swedish people in 1970s. Uh, what they uh, so what they showed was that if you again just consider very uh, simple bootstrap kind of arguments, uh, you do not start off with anything. You just uh, Try to construct all possible couplings using just your uh, Poincaré invariance and locality, I think. 
so you can just cons- uh, like you can write down the three point function i think we talked about this uh, before but you can write down the three point functions very uh, at least the uh, amplitudes very easily uh, because uh, it's just uh, so even using the modern on shell techniques uh, what you get is that the three point uh, this uh, three point vertex is just uh, like it can just be fixed by some helicity constraints i think dimension yeah. analysis yeah. or something yeah. so you do not require a lot of information to uh, write down this vertex but in uh, the point is that this three point vertex is usually zero uh, mm-hmm. when you take all the three particles yeah. on shell so that's why you do not worry about it a lot but if you somehow uh, use some variables where uh, uh, like some off shell variables you can write down a three point uh, function and we know that three point functions exist i mean in case of qvd we can write down write down mm-hmm. a three point function in case of gr we can write down a three point function so what this uh, swedish paper showed was that you can actually write down a three point function for any arbitrary spin theory so mm-hmm. uh, that again is a bit like so it goes against this weinberg uh, no uh, like these no go theorems that you cannot have any spin higher spin particles so it's kind of like a interesting puzzle mm-hmm. and i don't know what's the resolution to this but i know some string theorists like to argue that uh, yeah i mean string theory people like this side spin fact because so one thing a lot of people what they don't realize is that string theory did not start off with uh, this uh, brilliant idea of having strings instead of partic- point particles and st- uh, stuff like that it actually started off by to explain the reggae behavior of i think qcd amplitude qcd amplitude yeah yeah so uh, uh, actually it, it was the qcd spectrum mm-hmm. so if you had uh, so uh, in 1970s you had this uh, giant mess because uh, all these particle colliders were coming up and they were uh, coming up with new uh, like uh, new sort of particles which no one knew how to like uh, what were these particles they were thought of as elementary particles but gradually with the help of fine uh, this gelman actually uh, it was realized that these particles were not uh, like n- not all of these particles were fundamental but they were just uh, resonances of some uh, fundamental particles mm. and these fundamental particles were the so called quarks and gluons uh, not even gluons i think just quarks but uh, like these combinations of these quarks uh, like a lot of quarks could give you a lot of different hadrons mm. uh, but the interesting thing was that these hadrons uh, if you like if you take all these different hadrons that you were discovering and you plot them on some uh, a particular graph where you plot their angular momentum versus their uh, energy or the mass squared you got uh, you found out that these all these different hadrons uh, they they were just points on uh, like you couldn't draw lines mm. uh, like these uh, straight lines uh, that connected all these uh, hadronic spectra so it was very strange why why is this uh, this uh, angular momentum square proportional to this mass squared or something mm. and uh, so this was kind of like a so i think uh, tulio Reggae or someone, I think Reggae. Yeah, that's yeah, totally Reggae. So uh, Reggae was the first one to make these plots mm. and give some sort of a qualitative explanation of why why this uh, particular why this spectra is of this form. Mm. And uh, one reason we know that uh, you can get these linear spectra is when you have some rotating uh, particles because we know that uh, in case of quantized rotations, your yeah. uh, energies are of the form l into l plus one, mm. which is essentially a uh, uh, this uh, Reggae behavior. so uh, he tried to argue that there was some some sort of a quantized spin that was uh, present here some some uh, spinning particle uh, that was leading to all these uh, uh, these reggae trajectories as he called them now the point was that uh, the 
the only possible model or the simplest possible model to explain this kind of a spectra was turned out to be that of a string that if you consider two quarks bound by a string uh, and these quarks were uh, rotating or something you could show that this uh, rig, uh, like the spectra was had a regular uh, uh, like of behavior mm. and also it explained this uh, uh, what is it called the uh, this thing these quarks are together only confinement problem. a confinement thing so it uh, if you assume that this uh, quark tension was uh, i think linearly proportional to the mm. this fact that uh, like some kind of a, a spring like behavior that forces are proportional to k times x uh, if you considered no, some I potential of this form energy goes directly proportional to x, x squared or something no no in the case of i think your quark confinement the mechanism goes as energy goes as x right Why no, will the energy go as x? No, sure. What is the harmonic? The force has to go x as x, right? Okay, sure. I mean, yeah. Okay, sure. Yeah, it might be that. I, I. Okay, but it increases with distance. Yeah, yeah so okay. it's something of this form that yeah. uh, it's a linear function of your uh, distance. Hmm. Uh, so the simplest possible model to explain that was this string again. So this the string explained these two things very elegantly, but then I think later Gelman came up with this, uh, or uh, actually David Grouse and. uh this these people frank with check and all these they came up with the idea of a qcd uh gauge theory instead of the string model and so people gave up on string theory so the actual beginnings of the string theory was to just explain this regular mm-hmm. behavior and not the uh, not all this quantum gravity business but uh, what was interesting was that some people who did not give up on string theory or, or the string idea which it was known as at that time they realized that so there were a lot of uh, so called problems with the string model and one of the problems was that this consistency uh, like uh, the consistency of the model depended on a particular critical space time dimension so in the, uh, at that time it was 26 dimensions and so people just laughed at these people who came up with the result i think uh, olive and godard were the people who came up with this 26 dimension and people just laughed at them uh, then the another problem was uh, the fact that the the string spectra also contained uh, tachyons Mm. which essentially just led to a breakdown of causality and so uh, i think uh, i don't remember who came up with this but that guy was also laughed at in one of the aps meetings when he <laughs> came up with this result but then i think ashok sen uh, what he realized was that if you wanted to get rid of the tachyons the only possible way to get rid of them was to have a spin to excitation in your system no so, so basically you must the have gravity, gravity you should have gravity and that's the only way to get rid of the tachyons in your string theory and then people realize oh shit this is some like there is something here like you essentially just require gravity uh, to have a consistent string theory uh, and then 26 dimensions was a problem but then compactification uh, like it just gave you all this the way to have gauge theories in your system and now uh, another interesting like if you just uh, so all this was like at that time people just used to uh, so there were like these two camps in physics uh, at least high energy physics one of them was the bootstrap as matrix camp and one of them was a dual model camp uh, basically two different camps who were trying to uh, find a at that point was called a, a grand unified or some kind of a theory mm-hmm. so they were trying to combine gravity with uh, quantum uh, this uh, quantum field theory and uh, like one sort of camp they just used as matrix arguments uh, basically if you used all the properties of as matrix the causality locality and analyticity uh what sort of constraints do you get that was their approach and the other um, camp they relied on something known as dual models basically they realized that there were some sort of dualities 
and so you could just study uh, dual field theory instead of uh, studying a particular gravitational theory and uh, yeah they uh, tried to write down some models for that so of course the bootstrap camp uh, won here uh, dual models failed miserably and uh, they essentially just came up with string theory veneziano he wanted to write down a particular amplitude and mm. he realized that the only possible solutions to this amplitude were stringy solutions and that sort of just gave rise to string theory but the point is that if you consider the string theory from a perspective of a, 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 let's say the lagrangian perspective if you consider the string lagrangian uh, which is the modern way of looking at the string theories not the s matrix uh, approach what you have is a, a, so this a string can be so okay so if you consider a point particle uh, in a uh, let's say a manifold which is how you study uh, quantum field theory essentially so what you consider is maps from a manifold to some hilbert space and if you consider like the uh, trajectory of this uh, point particle it's some sort of world line uh, which is parameterized by the time but uh, in the case of a string you instead of having a world line you will have a world sheet and which will be parameterized by some sort of coordinates uh, along the string but the point is that this uh, these world sheet uh, this uh, string world sheet that you have this has uh, this has an extra symmetry uh, the so called conformal symmetry mm. and so if you want this and the reason you have this conformal symmetry on the world sheet is very it's not like straightforward uh, uh, i think it's got to do with the ma- some degrees of freedom for this string but the point is if you require this uh, conformal symmetry of the world sheet uh in even for the quantum theory so at the classical level you require this conform like if you impose this conform symmetry the only way to get it consistently in the quantum theory is that the while anomaly has to be zero mm. or the conformal anomaly and uh in this case what it turns out is that the while anomaly is just proportional to the instant field equations so it's just a 2d nonlinear sigma model and the uh, beta function essentially which uh, is the while anomaly that is equal to the r mu nu minus whatever the einstein field equations are so at the low ener- lowest energy limit so what it sort of tells you is that the consistency of string theory requires einstein field equations to hold so like these like yeah this is some sort of an indication that string theory might not be wrong this this is also sort of reminiscent of the a theorem because you said that it's exactly a c it's, theorem it's, yeah yeah exactly it's the c theorem in 2 dimensions yeah because it basically says that at very low energies that is mm. to say that at very large distances the only you know spectrum of your theory is just pure gravity right which makes sense because gravity is the only force that so i there is an interesting uh, anecdotal kind of thing here so uh, there is this uh, classical millennium prize problem which is known as the poincare conjecture uh, so the statement of that theorem was if you consider any generic uh, manifold like n dimensional space you have some uh, any some closed compact manifold this manifold always has to be like so essentially this manifold can be made into a sphere so it's always uh, whatever the mathematical terminology is homeomorphic diffeomorphic something to mm. a sphere now in lower dimensions this is very easy to solve i think in zero dimensions it's trivial in one dimensions uh, it's again very easy to see that everything can be like if there are no holes and everything mm. in your space everything is just uh, homotopic to a sphere a uh, circle essentially in that is two dimensions so in three dimensions uh it's hard but it was solved and in five and higher dimensions it was very easy to solve so i think poincare himself showed it for up to three dimensions i think 
and for five and higher dimensions it was later proved like a bit later but this special case of four dimensions was something that no one was able to solve because uh, that's like a recurring theme in low dimensional topology like this uh, three and four dimensions are very special in mathematics because uh, you do not have a lot of tools that work in higher dimensions here Mm. Uh now this this was a like very big open problem for more than 50 70 years i think more than 100 years mm. perelman solved it in i think 2000 yeah so in 2000 uh, perelman came up with the solution but the real like the actual like most of the meat of the solution was given in 1970s by a guy, guy called uh, richard hamilton so what he came up with was a very uh, a very interesting idea known as uh, uh, rishi flow mm. so uh, what the idea was that he considered a very so i think hamilton he might have been a physicist i'm not very sure uh, <laughs> wouldn't be the first one <laughs> but uh, the his uh, he so he uh, sort of considered a equivalent problem in uh, say uh, what do you call uh, differential equations so uh, consider say this what do you call this convection diffusion something mm-hmm. we know that if you have this uh, a very hot plate and l- like that okay so you have a plate and you just put something hot on this plate you know that this uh, heat it just flows along the whatever this uh, plate that you have mm-hmm. and when the heat flows you initially have a point that is very hot but over time this thing it just smoothens out mm-hmm. so you the temperature like it just starts flowing ar- across the plate and then everything ha- is of a uniform temperature so uh, his point was what if you have some sort of a like what if your manifold uh, itself uh, like it was governed by some sort of a differential equation that is similar to heat flow Mm. so the point is that uh, the so consider any arbitrary uh, like three dimensional manifold say now it will have some some areas which are of like some greater curvature some will have lower curvature so oh. in this case this curvature is the equivalent of your heat so the curvature gradually smooths so if you have some kind of flat. right so if you have some sort of a differential equation some kind of heat equation on this manifold uh, Uh, the from just the properties of your heat equation which mm-hmm. is a parabolic differential equation you know that it gradually just smoothens out mm-hmm. so everything will just smoothen out to a uniform curvature which is just a pure sphere yes. so this was the meat of his idea so uh, he wrote down an equivalent differential equation for this particular three three manifold and uh, what is equation uh, his equation was called the uh, rishi flow equation uh, so in your regular di- uh, heat equation you have a first derivative of your particular Uh, field or something mm. is proportional to a second derivative of something mm. uh, this is your regular heat equation so in this case you had the first derivative of the the now the field in this case will be the metric itself metric on your manifold yeah. mm. and the first derivative of the metric is proportional to the second derivative of the metric which is essentially r mu mm. your uh, rishi tensor but then whatever that thing which you are taking that single derivative with that is unique compared to right. what you are taking so it's just a parameter so okay. you you require this parameter on your manifold because that's how you construct a so if you when you want to show that something is homotopic homotopic to a sphere hmm. how do you know that so it essentially means you can flow this hmm. thing down yes. to a sphere yes or in the case of single dimension it's, uh, if you want to show that two lines are homotopic so you have to parameter all these lines by a particular parameter and you show that as you move this parameter you go from one line to yes. another and essentially it's basically a connection. connection it's a christoffel symbol right basically. so you can write down In the fact, connection the first derivatives of metric are christoffel symbols correct but this is essentially a flow on the space of metrics itself mm. so that's why it's a bit uh, non trivial here another non trivial fact here was that uh, in the case of your regular heat equation 
this parabolic uh, nature can be shown very easily and so this monotonicity could be proved very easily and so you did not have like you do not have to do any work you can just do a fourier transform show that everything just smooths out yeah. over time but in this case uh, in the case of this uh, very horribly nonlinear equation uh, because it's proportional to r mu so it's not uh, linear in any sense and so monotonicity cannot be shown very easily and this is where hamilton failed like he was not able to show first of all this monotonicity of the flow and second very important thing where he failed was that uh, you could so in uh, this regular heat equation uh, is in uh, lower dimensions essentially when you consider this convection and all these processes so you do not encounter very like singularities essentially but in this case uh, it was possible to find certain solutions where you are, which are singular in like how do you say so they become singular after evolution so they become singular in like finite time so you have finite okay. time singularities so the re, like one way you can think about these is so what this ricci flow is doing it's if you have some uh, say if the curvature of something is positive it's making the so it's like, trying to like smoothen out all the curvature so if the uh, curvature of something is like more than the sphere curvature it will try to like flatten it out <laughs> to a sphere but if the curvature of something is negative it will try to make it even more negative i think there is an obvious fix for this just take the modulus and then put that in modulus of what i mean whatever your ricci scalar is instead of it's not proportional to ricci scalar it's proportional to r mu it's oh. d by dt of g mu is proportional to r mu Oh, so okay. that's where so okay. this horrible nonlinear uh, property of this flow and second is that every time you have uh, these negative curvatures these negative curvatures will try to become even more negative yeah. with the flow so essentially if you have some some kind of a, a surface that looks like a saddle point even a tiny instability which right. becomes negative so agar uh, anything has a saddle point positive wale parts to sahi hai wo apna sphere bante chale jayenge but the negative parts will become even more Uh, mm. this negative curvature so at some point you will have this saddle point the starting me but it starts becoming lower 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 and then you have this pin singularity mm-hmm. so you can have all these singularities with the flow hamilton did not know what to do with the singularities so he conjectured something to probably finite number of singularities you can kuch kar sakte hai tum hata sakte ho aise aise karke conjecture kar deta no no take this at face value right why can't we simply take this at face value say that this simply means that there are some perturbations which are stable and there are some perturbations but how do you get rid of this unstable perturbations it means your approach is not working simple there a flow is useless if you want to show that if you want to prove this conjecture you have to show that there exists a flow like first of all no one knew that there could be a flow hamilton came up with the idea for ricci flow uske paas koi reason nahi tha why do you need a flow on your manifold but he said consider a flow on the manifold which okay. is similar to a heat equation उसमें जो तुम्हारी जो वॉट एवर फील्ड इज पैराटाइजिंग योर टेम्परेचर इन दिस केस इट्स योर मेट्रिक इट्स सो यू हैव समथिंग ऑन अ स्पेस ऑफ मेट्रिक्स यू कंसिडर अ फ्लो बट हिज पॉइंट वॉज दैट इज प्रोग्राम फील्ड बिकॉज सिंगुलरिटीज इन फाइनेट टाइम एंड नॉन डिटेल नेचर तो पैराबल टू नेचर शो नहीं कर सकता सो इट्स नॉट मोनोटोनस बट देन पैरलमैन केम इन टू थाउजेंड एंड ही रियलाइज दैट एक्चुअली हैमिल्टन हेड डन मोस्ट ऑफ द वर्क ऑल यू नीड टू शो इट इज दैट फर्स्ट देर आर ओनली अ फाइनेट नंबर ऑफ केसेज फॉर दीज सिंगुलरिटीज so it's essentially something like a renormalization argument you have to show that there are only a finite number of uh, parameters uh, that can uh, goes uh, like that can become infinite and then you can somehow add some co- counter terms but usne instead of like his counter terms but the fact that he considered these particular cases uh, and just before it goes singular this particular flow usne consider like usne wahan pe cut kiya unne he added some caps so it's some it's called surgery or something 
point is you can add some uh, caps to these places and you can continue this flow and uh, you can show that after adding these counter terms essentially the flow is like it survives so essentially your uh, manifold is like bust if you do the surgery uh, just before it becomes singular tumara rishi flow works and then so he actually had three papers perelman proved it in three papers that he published on archive uska point tha ki in 2000 Uh, i think he started in august so in august september october he published three papers on archive and first paper sab hasne lag gaye dekh ke kyunki it's like a millennium prize problem to agar ye man hypothesis ka paper dalega sab hasenge us pe archive pe ki but then he pehla paper koi nahi pada sab hasne lag gaye dekh ke ki kisi ne fir se prove kar diya bunker conjecture then he published a second paper and then people started getting a bit suspicious ki okay ye banda do paper ek ke baad ek isne dal diya same cheez pe and then some people started reading it then he published a third paper so in the third paper he showed this uh, monotonicity of the flow to uska usne bahut ek interesting argument use kiya he like he constructed a functional which he called entropy uh, like it's not uh, entropy in physical terms but he called it entropy because uska form was similar to your entropy functions mm-hmm. but his point was that if you consider this particular functional it obey this uh, monotonicity properties so that particular functional was monotonic which matlab uh, uska kya bolte hain that showed that your particular ricci flow itself equation was monotonic so he considered a functional that he constructed okay, from this okay. equation and uh, what it showed was that if this particular flow is monotonic this is if this particular integral jaise tum lagrangian construct karte ho दो तीन बंदे आए और वो उसका पेपर उसका आर्ग्यूमेंट चुराने लग गया और अपने नाम से पब्लिश करने लग गया बट देन नो वन गेव फॉक अबाउट दैट बट हाँ बट द इंटरेस्टिंग थिंग हेयर इज दैट पेरल मैन वेरी ब्यूटीफुल प्रूफ्स एंड हैमिल्टन का भी बहुत अच्छा आइडिया था बट द इंटरेस्टिंग थिंग इज दैट दिस सेम थिंग हैड मोर एस बीन डन बाई फिजिसिस्ट लाइक स्ट्रिंग थियोरिस एक्चुअली नाइनटीन सेवेंटीज इट सेल्फ लाइक दे हैड ऑल द पीसेज ऑफ द आर्ग्यूमेंट्स बस कोई उसे पुट टूगेदर नहीं किया तो बेसिकली दिस थिंग दैट वी वर डिस्कसिंग राइट नो दैट इन स्ट्रिंग थ्योरी यू हैव कन्फर्मल सिमिट्री ऑन योर वर्ल्ड शीट सो द कन्फर्मल सिमिट्री की वजह से इफ द थ्योरी हेज टू बी कंसिस्टेंट एज अ क्वांटम थ्योरी यू रिक्वायर दैट द वाइल अनोमली हेज टू बी जीरो बेसिकली कन्फर्मल सिमिट्री का जो पर्टिकुलर अनोमली देगा उधर को इट हेज टू बी जीरो राइट एंड वॉट इज द पर्टिकुलर वाइल अनोमली इन दिस केस इट्स प्रोपोर्शनल टू आर्मीन्यू आई जस्ट सेड इट वॉज प्रोपोर्शनल टू द इंस्टेंट फील्ड इक्वेशन बट इन दिस पर्टिकुलर केस इट्स प्रोपोर्शनल टू आर्मीन्यू प्लस सम हायर डेरेवेटिव करेक्शन बेसिकली प्रोपोर्शनल टू एवरीथिंग दट इज प्रोपोर्शनल टू आर स्क्वाइड राइट R okay. and R square. R and R square. So you, people usually write it as uh, R minus squared plus a Gauss bonnet term plus some Euler characteristic, right. just because it's more topologically transparent. Correct. Right. And then what it turns out later is that it's only the Euler characteristic that gives rise to Euler anomalies in theories where matter is involved. Right. And that's basically because um, it's only the 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 basically the renormalization for this term, the renormalization for the for this term, uh, requires a certain non-trivial. consistency criteria called the vesumino criteria basically saying that the transformations are abelian and this uh, basically 
removes everything else from R minus squared and R squared. Actually, R minus squared and R squared can anyways be removed in an EFT kind of paradigm because right. they're proportional to three-level equations of motion. Mm. So you can just get rid of them by field redefinition. It's only the Euler characteristic that survives. Uh, and okay, you can always say that it's the Weyl tensor that survives because that's the right. simplest thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, because again, Weyl tensor is you know Riemann squared plus Ricci squared plus something. Ricci squared and uh, scalar squared, everything is zero on shell. It's just the Riemann squared, but it's easier to work with the Weyl tensor then because it's more, uh, right. it has more symmetries. So, yeah, essentially that's how people parameterize the Weyl anomaly, and it turns out all matter contributions just contribute to that, and so it basically measures the uh, de matter degrees of freedom in your theory. Correct. So this is how you show that your number of critical dimensions in string theory has to be 26. Because mm. in that case, you have you consider all these possible, uh, actually in 10 uh, in the case of super string theory, but point is you cons uh, this particular Weyl anomaly cancellation, it gives you this, uh, so it essentially just gives you, uh, like just Amartya said, it's proportional to the degrees of freedom, matter degrees of freedom. So what are the, like what are the so-called matter in your uh, theory? It's the ghost fields and your fermion fields. Mm. So it just gives you a relation of the form, something proportional to d minus 10 is equal to 0. So it shows that this Weyl anomaly cancels only when your d is equal to 10. So that's why theory only works in 10 dimensions. But uh, okay, the interesting point was this, uh, so physicists had all, all this calculation. They had the fact that this uh, Weyl anomaly has to cancel for the particular string model. And now uh, if you like, uh, so our point was that the conformal symmetry has to uh, survive basically for the quantum theory. Now the point is, you an equivalent way of looking at this is that this conformal symmetry that you have, so uh, like if you consider a renormalization kind of approach of looking at this thing, uh, what do you mean by the fact that something is conformal to all orders in perturbation theory? It means that your beta function has to be zero, hmm. and it's like it's just the same way of looking at the same equation. The beta function is the proportional to your r minus plus higher con uh, yeah. uh, curvature terms. So Weyl anomaly is essentially just the rephrasing of the beta function. Hmm. Now the point is that the form of this beta function is uh, d by dt of g minu. Because the g minu is the uh, field just re-normalize in this case. So basically physicists had this uh, uh, Ricci flow equation already in their equations. This d by dt of g minu hmm. is proportional to r minu. So you had the Ricci flow already and you had the entire string theory basically the fact that Weyl anomaly has to satisfy. O only thing that we needed to show was the monotonicity of the flow. But that was also proved by this uh, Zamolchikov or whatever, this guy, C-theorem guy. Usne, five years later, he showed that there existed something known as a C-theorem. Basically, you could you could construct a, a functional, known as a C-functional. The central charge. Uh, the central charge of the uh, corresponding CFT. Jiska point is that uh, this functional is satisfies some monotonous properties. And so uh, he this was some kind of renormalization argue, argument that the renormalization flow is actually monotonous. Mm -hmm. He wanted to show. But that's what you needed to show. Because Ricci flow is monotonous is equal to the fact that uh, yeah. the C theorem uh, holds. But this was in two dimensions. In four dimensions, it's no, but No, no, but this is interesting. Because uh, the fact, so uh, what string theorists do is they have a 2D nonlinear sigma model. So nonlinear sigma model is you have a space of maps from a 2D manifold mm. to some four dimension or n dimensional mm. manifold. In case of string theory, it's 10 dimensional, but the point is you have a uh, map from a 2D manifold to just uh, kyoportum strings banare basically. So oh. point is that uh, this, uh, right. you have a yeah, 2D CFT. The right. So the world sheet is a 2D CFT. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have a 2D CFT on your world sheet, but your actual theory is space strings, hai, that's a four dimensional manifold. And that's what you need to show. Because beta function is actually d by dt of g menu is equal to r mu nu and this mu nu r indices on the four manifold or the three manifold basically. Mm -hmm. 
so you essentially had this reshift flow equation you had c theorem you just needed someone to put it all together and show that actually the a solution to the perelman equations existed but physicist thoda pichhe rahega us cheez mein they had everything wo fir bhi nahi kar paaye is cheez perelman came later he came up with this entropy function which turned out to be this uh, c function only so this was like very interesting idea i yeah for a moment i lost what the physical questions you were trying to think about were but you mentioned uh, fundamental particles at one point and it just uh, put me off on this on this train of thought i've recently been reading these old quantum gravity papers by weltman mm-hmm. and tooft and these people and if you look at them they're just so fucking elegant man like for example uh, in a paper by weltman where he derives the propagator for the graviton and everything the way they start deriving it is just very very it's just, it's just so beautiful you have some source you have some vertex right and there is a propagator in between mm-hmm. now what do you want you want your graviton to be a fundamental particle so this means that at this vertex there can be no decay and just from you know th- these very yeah. incredibly clear physical insights you can actually write down the entire graviton propagator and that's how these people did it it was, it, it is just mesmerizingly beautiful and i mean i don't blame string theorists and you know people mm-hmm. who basically try to do quantum gravity from string theory or whatever because it's just it's also elegant and so right. just come everything comes up like naturally that's that's one reason why i like uh, if i want to continue doing physics i want to do it with someone who does like old school field theory and not a string theorist hmm. because like string theory is all very cool very interesting mathematics and all but the if you read the old school like 1970s 1960s yeah, dude, classic papers. Of papers those are like the i think e- even if you want to do string theories uh, those papers are something that you always have to read because yeah. they are just like your uh, these like golden age papers i think if you're losing interest in physics then reading those papers will actually re- remind yeah. you again why you like started doing physics in the first place because I of the like elegance these days people just do just incredibly it's not their fault obviously it's just that there are no new conceptual leaps being made so it's just a matter of technical you know calculations at this point but those old papers are just uh, they they mesmerizing that's all I mean, I mean, and they're all like five and six pages yeah, they are yeah. they aren't even long and they're so incredibly well written people back then knew how to write fucking papers right and um, yeah before we move on santosh briefly mentioned uh, this h theorem or something Uh, uh yeah so i'm going to ask you what the h theorem is but before i lose my train of thought let me just quickly so we talked about maldasena's constraints mm. the thing was these were classical constraints mm. they just requ- they just involved a like three level coupling mm. now belazini and these people very recently uh, discussed this in the presence of matter loops um so basically you have a three point function with a loop in between and at least one external graviton like mm. and the way to deal with these is to basically use your dispersion relations and things like this mm-hmm. so and then they came up with the similar uh, you know consistency criteria that maldasena did mm-hmm. that to in order to have any kind of unitarity bounds you need to have a regge behavior a string theory like behavior in the ue yeah. and uh, it's 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 so i mean it's it's just more more and more clear that maybe string theory isn't right but no, whatever is right is like I, i believe string theory is right Hmm. it's not wrong it's mathematically consistent and hmm. any uh, like any constant that you get from string theory is actually uh, what any theory of quantum gravity has to satisfy so it it it's a correct framework but it may not be your uh, the most efficient approach to get a theory of quantum gravity hmm. and 
the thing is these the, the, these papers the one by maldasena especially they're also incredibly instructive when you're trying to calculate these onshell amplitudes right. in gravity because for example the thing with particles with spin is that like chetan i think mentioned at the start of the podcast that uh, three point functions are usually just fixed by helicity amplitudes and so on but uh, the thing with spin two particles or whatever is that the the three point functions are actually complex complicated um, functions of both the polarizations and the momenta and mm-hmm. there's no way to uniquely fix them and the, and the and the nice thing is you can actually classify these uh, you know combinations of polarization and momenta mm-hmm. that lead to a certain order amplitude in terms of three kinds of form factors mm-hmm. so and these form factors basically reflect things like you know when a graviton flips chirality mm-hmm. flips helicity basically of the incoming scatterer mm-hmm. or when the helicity is preserved mm-hmm. and something that is just basic another piece that's basically just forced to sort of imply conservation equations like the water identities basically mm-hmm. so basically if you start with you know a minimally coupled photon to gravity and you look at the matrix element for its energy momentum tensor that you're going to then use to source a graviton field uh, then this energy momentum tensor sa- satisfies some conservation equation partial mu t mu equal to 0 mm-hmm. which is essentially a water identity because in momentum space it's k mu t mu equal to 0 and uh, then it satisfies some symmetry and antisymmetry these conditions and you can actually very easily bootstrap this matrix element using just a piece that's proportional to the ward identity a piece that you need uh, to have like you know a chirality flipping kind of thing and a piece that is just a tree level calculation the, uh, the tree level vertex factor right. and all of these three then come with three form factors and now the program is to calculate these three form factors because that's what the loops do right. so yeah i mean it's it's it's, it's uh, all these on shell techniques have really taken off recently just because i think it's very interesting i mean something that i personally want to think about is using on shell techniques to constrain dark sectors right because the thing with dark sectors is that they're light loops and you cannot incorporate them in an eft regime anyway mm-hmm. and the only way to look for their signatures is to do some kind of a non perturbative kind of an analysis and that's where on shell techniques come in handy you know what's interesting is the uh, abhi jo to bola ki your three point function it's like a very complicated function actually mm. uh, in terms of polarization tensors and momenta but uh, if you consider these on shell variables mm. uh, which are similar to these twist, twister variables you we were talking about the other day mm. point is that in terms of those variables it's just a single fun- like a single expression oh. so it's not even a, like sum of, of a lot of terms it's just one expression like it's uh, it's just one something you can write down some combination of the spinner brackets so that's very interesting that something that has 100 terms essentially is reduced to a a single term in uh, if you ri- want to write your three point couplet so that's why these on shell techniques are like very very powerful mm-hmm. if you want uh, a core interesting thing is that uh, you i think you talked about the fact that if you want to consider these uh, like the simplest process that you consider are uh, when you consider these two to scattering are these ladder diagrams hmm right so the point is uh, that's not just the simplest process that you can consider the point is these are the only possible processes yeah, that yeah. you can because yeah. uh, uh, like if you consider higher loop processes yeah. in say a four point uh, amplitude what are the possible possibilities that you have one is these ladder diagrams and the second is the triangle diagrams hmm. these are the only two possibilities that you have but uh, what is interesting is these uh, triangle diagrams are all zero they all uh, they always sum up to zero and this is kind of like an open problem to show for all orders why these tri- triangle diagrams are zero so this is uh, known as the no triangle hypothesis for amplitudes hmm. now the point is that you can actually show this no triangle behavior in supersymmetric theories say n equal to 4 or n equal to 8 supergravity and uh, this was the first place where people started looking at these particular diagrams because there is there is a big open problem to show that 
n equal 8 super gravity the maximum super gravity is a finite theory it, like it it was conjectured by gelman but uh, uh, people thought that this was completely foolish because uh, string theorists knew that uh, anyways known perturbatively it's a string theory so uska perturbative finiteness ka koi matlab nahi hai but then some people started to do these calculations and every time like they did a uh, two loop calculation they showed that it was finite but समवन गेम आर्ग्यूमेंट कि थ्री लूप पे द फाइनेट इज खराब हो जाएगा कि इट विल स्टार्ट डाइवर्जिंग बट देन समवन डेट थ्री लूप कैलकुलेशन दे रियलाइज अगेन इट्स फाइनेट एंड द बिहेवियर वॉज एक्जैक्टली द सेम एज द कॉरेस्पॉन्डिंग एंगल्स थ्योरीज तो एज दे स्टार्टेड डूइंग दिस हायर लूप कैलकुलेशन दे फाउंड आउट दैट एवरी टाइम दे रेड दिस डायग्राम्स ट्राइंगल डायग्राम्स ऑलवेज कैंसल अमंग दम सेल्स द ओनली डायग्राम्स दैट यू हैव आर दिस दैट डायग्राम्स सो दे केम अप विद दिस हाइपोथिस द नो ट्राइंगल हाइपोथिस उनका पॉइंट था कि uh for uh, and they did this corresponding calculation for the gauge theory uh, n equals 4 jo tha unka super angles in that case you could show that actually these triangle diagrams they do not contribute in this matrix so they started observing similar behavior in n equals 8 so wo thoda confuse ho gaya ki kya ho raha hai aisa ki har bar why are these triangle diagrams cancelling among each other so they came up with this hypothesis but then uh, i think uh, burn and his collaborators they realized was, uh, what they realized was this behavior, this good behavior is actually coming from pure gravity itself so even in einstein gravity if you consider higher loop processes uh, all these triangle diagrams always cancel and you always end up with these ladder diagrams and again you do not have any good answer to why these triangle diagrams are cancelling so people have these uh, jugad arguments to show that uh, probably why these triangle di- diagrams should not contribute but unka point is that uh, the finiteness of this maximal super gravity it's uh, like it's a very good matlab uh, ek Uh, interesting idea is that all this acha uh, uh, behavior of the unequal set super gravity is just coming from pure gravity itself so that might uh, give some indication to that asli einstein gravity may itself also be a very well behaved theory may okay. also be perturbatively finite matlab probably not but then even unequal set super gravity seemed like it was not a finite theory what turn like uh, up to five loops i think people have uh, like burn and his collaborators have done this calculation they've shown that it's finite Hmm. Like that's very interesting. We were talking about the A theorem, so I'll just briefly mention some comments. The way the A theorem is proved in four dimensions is to basically construct. A, uh, by the way, there's a very big subtlety when it comes to uh, looking at the A theorem. It involves you to ignore basically any cosmological constant, because in the presence of a cosmological constant, it's difficult to define a moduli space for your fields. And the way mm-hmm. the A theorem is proved is by considering some kind of a scalar. you know that sets the moduli you you pick something from the moduli space and then it uh, you know it acquires an effective action and so on then you consider its 2 to 2 forward scattering and you construct a dispersion relation yes. and then you prove the monotonicity of the flow in six dimensions it's and the thing the nice thing is in so in two dimensions you have this c theorem about the central charge but in four dimensions you actually have two numbers you have something you have a c and an a it just turns out in four dimensions the c doesn't contribute like it 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 just trivially cancels out in the vesumino uh, it, it basically it can be removed by local counter terms in four dimensions that's the point it's proportional to box r or something right but uh, the thing is uh, in six dimensions it becomes very tricky just because you have more structure possible for your curvature squared operators and uh, it turns and the the thing is so in six dimensions just from dimensional analysis a 2 to 2 scattering for a scalar will have terms of the form stu i mean so it's a scalar so it has to respect both symmetry and so the only things you can construct are things like s squared plus t squared plus u squared or stu or something and the thing is in the forward limit all of these vanish 
I mean, the part that's proportional to A is STU and the forward limited vanishes. So naively, people thought that there's just no way to write a A theorem for six dimensions. But then the idea is to go beyond the forward limit. Instead of looking at the T equal to zero limit, you look at the S equal to zero limit. Mm -hmm. And in that limit, you can actually uh, write down a dispersion relation, but it's just that it turns out to be an, of an indefinite sign. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is, uh, the observation is, uh, this, uh, this indefinite sign dispersion integral is exactly the same indefinite sign dispersion integral that you get for dimension six operators uh, mm. in standard model EFT. And so there are no positivity bounds. So I'm not sure if there is some deep connection there, but it's the structure is identically the same. The partial wave expansions are also exactly the same. Mm. And uh, you can make similar arguments in both cases. For example, dimension six SMEFT, you can uh, actually show that uh, in case of super renormalizable interaction, so that basically the uh, T equals, basically the infinite polar in both S and T both vanishes then you basically are forced to have UV completions that are only either scalars or vectors. You cannot mm -hmm. have higher spin UV completions. So it's a very powerful constraint, I'd I mean, say, on uh, UV I completions. I think, uh, so uh, you said that in six dimensions, the, the only way this C theorem, uh, the A theorem works, uh, is uh, like quite related to your positivity conjectures. Mm. And I think uh, it's not a coincidence. It actually, uh, like, it makes sense that it's connected to your positivity bounds because uh, as we noted earlier uh, the consistency of a particular string theory is actually the like it's uh, it shows that your c theorem uh, has to hold mm. uh, basically so the consistency of the string theory is mm. dependent upon the fact that this c theorem holds yeah. which means it should depend upon these positivity no but uh, the bounds. thing is this is a, this is a six dimensional a theorem and uh, uh, but in string theory what's interesting is you have these dualities so uh, uh, point is key uh, if you like the uh, whole string theory works in 10 dimensions hmm. the super string theory now the point is to uh, my freedom to compactify however many dimensions hmm. you want uh, now usually we compactify six dimensions because we need a four dimensional effective theory hmm. but the uh, interesting part about dualities is you can uh, so if i consider a compactification of four dimensions instead of six dimensions I'll get a six-dimensional effective theory. Hmm. Now the point is these two theories are dual to each other because both uh, parent theories are ten-dimensional theory. Hmm. So you can consider that six-dimensional theory to just be the same, like a dual to a four-dimensional effective theory. Hmm. So that's I think the reason it's uh, like the reason it's dependent on your positivity bounds is essentially due to the fact that it's uh, like it's. Uh, they both follow from the same consistency requirement yeah, from string theory. It's related to the consistency of string theory. Mm, that's nice. Uh, and, uh, another interesting thing is that uh, this, uh, when you were talking about Hay theorem, you said that you need to introduce this scalar field, mm. uh, uh, and then uh, introducing the scalar field is required to show that the flow is uh, monotonous. Mm. Now the point is the scalar field, uh, like it's the same reason uh, you introduce the scalar field in string theory also. It's called a dilaton field. Yeah. Uh, it's, and it's it's a it's I think you guys also call it the conformal compensator, right? Because it's used to cancel out the Weyl anomaly. Correct. That's the whole point. Uh, but the point is that for this Perelman, he uh, he, how do you call it? He had to introduce a scalar field essentially mm -hmm. uh, in his equations to uh, show that the uh, monotonicity of the uh, of his particular Ricci flow equations had to hold. So he had to rediscover the fact that you you have a data <laughs> in your string theory. Man, so that's the fact that string <laughs> theorists have they had everything in this uh, in their toolkit Fuck to prove the one kind. That was just an incredibly smart generation, man. I don't fucking it's know what to amazing. say. Everybody was like a fucking genius. <sighs> it's like string theory is uh, like it's uh, it's a piece of mathematics that like I think Witten once said it that it's it's a mathematical toolkit that just came into the 19th century, but it act actually belongs to 
ट्वेंटी सेकेंड सेंचुरी और समथिंग संतोष इज बॉल पार्क टू थिंक अबाउट दीज फिक्शनल यूनिवर्सेज But yeah. suppose you he's have, very good at it, by the yeah. way, for the listeners. Yeah, he has a blog. I think he yeah. has something. Yeah, check his blog out. It's not active anymore, but he's written some really cool content there. Right. And we keep encouraging him to produce more, but he's too busy um, crying over. Let's not. <laughs> let's not go there. <laughs> uh, but Santosh, see, the point is that suppose you have some uh, civilization that is not very advanced, but okay. what if they come across something, uh, say a piece of technology or uh, some. something some ideas some knowledge that actually belongs to a few centuries later what do you think will be the progression of the it will be like giving that. uranium to let us say cavemen that's see i what i do not like about this particular analogy is uh, ki i think someone said what if uh, so a similar argument i think someone made on this joe rogan podcast that uh, about ufos essentially unka point tha ki chetan and ufos actually yeah like ufos but unka point tha ki like uh, of course the generic idea is that ufos are very advanced technologies and so that's why uh, you instead in spite of having so many cameras and millions of tiktok videos every day you still do not have any uh, good videos good resolution videos of ufos hmm. uh, sabse bada problem Uh, now the point is uh, what people like to argue is that ufos actually belong to some very advanced civilization hmm. and so unka uh, technology is like so advanced uh, it's a, about to come to you hmm. uh, point is that unka technology is so advanced ki uh, it's basically beyond our understanding point here so uh, i think jorogan made this uh, comparison that what if you had a nuclear reactor and you put it in uh, 16th century sir hmm. or 14th century jab unka steam engine nahi tha अगर तुम उन्हें जाके न्यूक्लियर रिएक्टर दे दोगे तो क्या करेंगे उनकी गन फट जाएगी बेसिकली तो दैट्स हिज पॉइंट कि डिस्कवरिंग अ यूएफओ इन लाइक हमारा इन ट्वेंटी फर्स्ट सेंचुरी वट वी आर इन इट्स लाइक द सेम एज हैविंग अ न्यूक्लियर रिएक्टर इन सिक्सटीन सेंचुरी यू कुड डू यू कुडन डू एनीथिंग विद इट ऑल यू कुड डू विद इट इज लाइक जस्ट फॉक अराउंड विद इट अनटिल यू फाउंड आउट हाउ डिफरेंट थिंग्स हो बट उनका पॉइंट वॉज दैट इवन इफ यू डिस्कवर अ यू एफ ओ राइट नाउ you the point is you would be able to fuck around with it long enough to understand ki if i put these two three things together something happens ki it starts odna lag jata hai whatever it's like the same thing as if you have a small mini nuclear reactor in 16th century they'll push they'll some buttons around until they uh, they'll realize that if i push these three buttons it'll explode bijli is producing or something but they won't be able to understand because <laughs> unke pas radioactivity wagera nahi hai chetan has given up on english <laughs> Uh, that's the point i think more or less ha, so like what are your thoughts it's also the technology also de- uh, the utility of technology also depends a lot upon the infrastructure like a very simple example is for example railways when we are constructing railways and we try to connect very remote areas the first problem we have is the infrastructure once the infrastructure is there in place like your rails your let us say your fuel your fuel refueling points and the demand for that thing it is actually just absolute garbage it is just becomes absolutely useless to do it that is the same problem with like space travel technically i say we can still reach the moon and all that but there are much cheaper technologies but they must be used by a large amount of people before they become economically viable Hmm. this is the idea i can always uh, there are so many technologies that are there for space travel like suppose if you want to just look at the simplest case the travel between the earth and the moon if there is sufficient demand the infrastructure can be something like let us say the space cable the elevator hook or whatever like anyone who watches kosgezak videos it's pretty fun 
there's a lot of it but this is the point there needs to be enough demand so that the infrastructure which will be initially unprofitable for the first few i would say decades or even a few centuries this must be justified as long as this can be justified later travel and later transport to and from movement whatever it is that will become extremely cheap mm. that will become extremely economically viable no but my point is like what if you have some piece of say some idea uh, knowledge basically from 22nd century kuch uh, like i think you had a similar uh, thing that you were working on what if some people who did not know any physics or something what mm. if they came across these ideas in uh, high energy physics or modern physics yeah that, that was an idea i was actually discussing with you guys like a few you know, whatever a few days ago like this was the idea like suppose there People is people might steal it from the podcast i'm just warning <laughs> i mean that's the point now you can steal it and fucking cold man i should have brought my hoodie i can barely fucking speak <laughs> so this was the idea like the idea was simple like some of the like <clears throat> okay this is the idea suppose there is a collapse of academic authority in the world suppose there is a collapse <laughs> yes suppose there is a, a collapse of academic authority but the academic work is still preserved mm-hmm. in the sense you still have you know textbooks you still have books being written but the point is this there is no longer a continuity of academic authority like from professor to phd student to whatever if this chain is broken at some point globally throughout the world at one point and it dies out for let us say 50 years so that academic authority has to be reestablished now this is the point this will lead to a huge amount of confusion even though there are still available material there will be still so many mistakes so many blunders mm-hmm. and you know what will be produced in the name of new science new research papers nobody will be able to like trust them properly enough mm-hmm. and because of this lack of trust they will simply be and very quickly and this this confusion will not last like a few decades this will last honestly for a few centuries mm-hmm. since this confusion will last for such a long time these ancient texts will now will now be given so many new interpretations and so many new twists that the original ones will simply be lost sounds like religion <laughs> that's but, i think the whole story of religion in some way see, in your uh, particular uh, world that you are trying to build uh, it's like very difficult to uh, think about some some place where all the texts survive and all the i would say most of the text like all of the texts i mean you can right. just uh, and but still uh, i think a much more feasible thing to uh, think about is what if some some piece of knowledge from 23rd century mm-hmm. it came into the 21st century so what if some aliens or someone from future mm-hmm. they came and gave you a 100 year textbook mm-hmm. whatever the uh, corresponding uh, string theory or whatever energy theory in mm-hmm. the century may is and they give you this textbook what do you think will happen okay let so us simplify let us take a concrete example i give a copy of peskin schroder to euler right that's what the what basic so it's exactly the same situation because yeah Uh, the academic uh, authority in this particular sense does not exist yeah and no one understands what that no one understands what is written yeah so i think that's a much more feasible thing but uh, i think it's uh, more or less related to the plot of arrival because in arrival the uh, <laughs> we have discussed this spoiler alert but the point <laughs> is that uh, these so called aliens that uh, arrive on earth they uh, they like the uh, story actually turns out to be the fact that these aliens are Uh, actually some very advanced civilization or very advanced beings from uh, i think uh, some 600 or thousands of years in future and the reason they came to the earth uh, uh, in like at that place was to 
impart knowledge essentially to humans because the fact is that uh, like according to the plot line uh, in thousands of years in the future humans will advance and become a such an advanced species that uh, like they'll be a dominant force in the galaxy and now these aliens from the future they'll require the help of humans to like for some particular reasons i think some galactic war or something and that's the reason they went to the future like it's a very twisted story but their point was like they came thousands of years uh, in the past to mm-hmm. give a particular piece of knowledge to humans so it's kind of like related to the plot of arrival like it's fun to think about what will happen if some piece of idea from hundreds of years in the future came to the past like i don't know what will happen you are the guy who can any input samarthi uh, no i just want to know about the h theorem <laughs> don't forget about the h theorem honestly Uh, I've forgotten already, which is why I'm asking you. <laughs> Let's honestly talk about this entire thing. What will happen if a piece of technology... So we start talking about string theory and then it's just science fiction. <laughs> so it makes, it makes sense. sense. <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> Probably what we should title this episode. String theory and unrelated <laughs> science fiction. Or in Chetan's case, fan fiction. <laughs> this is... Yeah. This is... Actually, I was discussing this with uh, another person the other day. like you know advanced enough technology becomes very similar to just magic if you give it to people who simply do not understand it like suppose i give a mobile phone and the infrastructure of mobile phones to and there is a game structure and i give it to a population of cavemen and i give them no clue at all as to how, no clue at all as to how this thing works and i just give them the the bare minimum knowledge required to just use it mm. now the point is it they will use it of course but now it will be exactly the story of this it will be ritualistic more or less no but the thing is mobile phones these days uh, for example we use phones for things let's say like texting and the culture of texting was way beyond mo- like way before mobile phones so the thing is we already have some kind of you know cultural um gradual things that we do and mobile phones just f- package these things into more and more different forms So uh I mean in principle you could construct this experiment on chimpanzees I mean Right but I mean if you can forget about mobile phones and consider say a gun so if you take a modern <laughs> yeah. rifle and you go go give to it to an american uh, neanderthal <laughs> no forget about american go to neanderthal or something these uh, ancient people uh, who like fought with sticks and stones mm-hmm. uh, I think that would be sufficiently like close to magic for them yeah. but you have this weapon kind of thing they don't even understand first of all they don't even understand the material Because no this is the point okay let us let us give a gun to a neanderthal right. now it has now the point is this i don't give him the infrastructure in other in other words but he will run out of ammunition at some point no, and look at what will happen in a few generations see, later that's fine it will run out of ammunition but the point is that it does not depend upon having a culture because at least if if they see someone else using that gun and killing some animal yes yes this will give rise to myths and legends right. that, you that see like in that generation fine people realize okay we have this one thing which is a very powerful weapon i don't know how it works but if i do this i can kill literally any living thing i want i think that's the like uh, that's one reason why these uh, alien believers uh, like the they it's a conspiracy theory <laughs> that all these religious <laughs> myths that you have uh, there are only two possible explanations for those those like uh, like of course three possible but one of them is like someone is making up this all, all the shit but if you forget about that the only two possible explanations are one there is a very advanced uh, civilization these so called aliens uh, who are either humans only from the future or these are some very advanced beings from different planets and they came to earth at some point of time and interacted with the 
uh, the whatever the people were at that time and so uh, when they like whatever they did there like say they built the pyramids or something uh, that seemed to be very like that almost seemed magical to the people and so all these myths about uh, these uh, magical things that uh, happened mm-hmm. these were essentially just the like uh, aliens just showcasing their yeah. technology and the, the the other explanation is that these people were high <laughs> so these were these are the two good explanations i think that. actually you know uh, we, for one we should have recorded the discussion we were having here the other day about all oh these man. conspiracy theories and bootsoid and everything <laughs> i i feel like we should record it i think we can actually have shrinil as a guest on this podcast because aside from his uh, unmatched storytelling abilities this is exactly the, uh, the topic of his fifth year thesis oh, he he oh. works on exactly these questions science fiction and questions like the question santosh is asking and so when i had gone to the hospital with him mm-hmm. he was basically telling me all of these like really cool things and the first thing i thought of was that it would be really cool to have on a podcast yeah. so if we want to seriously have like a science fiction kind of discussion i think we should really get rinil we should also have some conspiracy theorist but i don't know anything. we already have one shrinil is one shrinil is one shrinil shrinil is shrinil is Uh, against all known knowledge everything is a scam <laughs> to him it's a different thing i'll probably have to i don't know bribe him with something i'm not really sure what i can bribe him with but um, if i can get him on the podcast it'll be really cool it will be amazing yeah but yeah. conspiracy theories are just they just have a bad rep <laughs> there is also this the i would i would actually like this idea what people say about conspiracy theories that the more that the most outlandish of them are actually just used to deride the ones that are realistic yeah, yeah but i think uh, some like uh, some aspects of this conspiracy theory have been proved so i think uh, these <laughs> by madison i mean this is, like, <laughs> this is very this is becoming a very meta conspiracy <laughs> but the point is i think fbi used to have these uh, various uh, programs where they uh, they actually constructed all these very outlandish conspiracy theories so that people yeah that's the story of the dark web right the way the okay this is what happened so the the fbi or some american agency as usual they they built the entire the, the deep net or whatever it was <laughs> no they they built the the dark net and the deep net so simply for private communication hmm. they built it entirely for just secret government communication but now that's a problem as soon as other people know that there is some traffic in the deep web they immediately know that it's important and worth hacking hmm. Hmm. so now they had to open it up to the public they simply opened it up to the public and said anyone can use it and we'll also use it mm. and since the whole in, the entire of the information is so highly encrypted the our significant information get just gets lost in the mm. jumble like there is if there is a very competent hacker he won't know where to target mm. which is the first layer of defense yeah, anonymity is the point of internet basically <laughs> and that was how internet got uh, created also yeah. regarding this entire story of advanced civilizations i am not yet sure as to whether civilizations can get arbitrarily advanced by mere technological progress i honestly think that social factors play uh, social factors honestly put in a natural cut off dude See, most no i think that that's also the point behind this uh, i think who was it polly or someone who had this idea of these uh, filters basically great filters oh yes because the point is i think he was the guy who came up with no okay that's fermi so fermi came fermi's up with this paradox. idea of fermi's paradox oh, that if the universe is infinite as we sort of know it is and uh, you so, don't even have to assume the universe yeah, is infinite I mean, just take the milky way 
you'll end up with a few thousand civilizations just as but if you take milky way you can still have some like if you write down a probability function you can have certain facts that okay like probably the probability will be low but no, it's still it, enough it, it will be high actually it will be high but it may not be high enough because uh, all of these factors are not very uh, like easily calculable the in the drake equation but the point is if if there is an infinite universe then like it's a no brainer that there will be other intelligent civilizations that is true the point so is simply this you see the trend which humanity has followed until now now look at it for technological progress there is absolute there is inherent necessity that a species which achieves technological progress must have greed must have this expansionist urge no but uh, see everything uh, that we are trying to argue here uh, so the point is that uh, it can act as a great filter ki yeah. uh, like if the uh, if the people discover nuclear weapons and they have all these uh, uh, toxic qualities then it might happen that someday they'll just bomb each other out that's so the story of nuclear weapons this is, is honestly the best idea of nuclear weapons which i've heard the only reason the world is in a relatively more peaceful state today than it was for example in the 24 in the 20th century is because for the first time in human history we have the technology to wipe out an entire nation within a few minutes but then we have the policy of mutually assured, assured destruction right Yeah, so the other day we were discussing exactly the this Asimov thing right yeah. just because the speed of light is uh, finite it sort of inevitably means that there's going to be some kind of tension between the uh, like uh, no no that's not Asimov but yeah that that's yeah, whatever mm-hmm. we were discussing that on the same day and then so basically war is inevitable because you yes. can never instantaneously know yeah the basic idea goes like this suppose there is an outpost of the human civilization on let us say some the nearest star alpha centauri it's like four light years away so any communication you send there if i constrain it with the speed of light will take eight years for if you to receive a response and in this eight years you never know how much war preparation has been going on there and eight years is a significant amount of time to mobilize and so the only choice you have even if you like whatever for some reason you trust them completely the only choice you have is to rearm yourself mm. and the, and again now this will snowball the now this will just snowball because of the inherent slowness in communication and and again now we'll end up with a first strike policy use it or lose it mm-hmm. we'll have no choice the smartest choice we have is to launch a nuclear strike against mm-hmm. them but see again if you have a target that's 80 light years away uh, launching a nuclear weapon is useless mm. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like cuz yeah oh that's yeah I that's the idea sense to have a war with uh, like galactic uh, civilization civilization But again, my point is that we, everywhere we are assuming the fact that the other advanced civilizations are human-like, are human-oriented basically. Mm-hmm. So they 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 work like we do. But what if they are some sort of like cybernetic beings or something? What like that's essentially the no, point. No, no. The point is, I am just assuming that they have these qualities of being expansionist, and this is a fundamental thing. Any any civilization which has the which is that advanced mm-hmm. it must have started off from approximately the same level of technology that we so had that's correct but huh. what if you have a very rational civilization so for example in uh, star wars no oh, sorry star trek you have these uh, civilizations uh, uh, where like all the people were just like ultra rational people so that that way that is just unstable no consider it, this it there is a population of people who are, who all cooperate among each other mm-hmm. now let us consider a perturbation here the perturbation is this there is exactly one selfish person mm-hmm. now this perturbation is completely unstable mm-hmm. it will grow it will definitely grow he will be at a decisive advantage Mm. This this kind of population is completely unstable no, to those kind not, of perturbations. Uh, I'm not saying they are not selfish. I'm saying they are ultra rational. So of course, if you are super rational, 
then you have to be very selfish yeah so, that's game theory 101 uh, so it's essentially the entire civilization was uh, like they uh, of course they had some like central uh, uh, like infrastructure and all but they they were just like small groups of people who were scattered across the entire planet that that was their point because they have to be super uh, uh, selfish so they are like mm-hmm. not very community kind of thing so like i mean this is a good thing to think about but again uh, my point is that what if you just take mm-hmm. out emotions and everything out of it what if you, if you just consider uh, like say the civilization which is just like a computer program so it's essentially just robots what if somehow robots were the first kind of living things that developed i artificial intelligence kind of thing mm. so, so they, they don't, don't have, have things like empathy or whatever basically right so i think most of the these qualities that we may consider as uh, faults for human beings the selfishness and all they might have just evolved due to the fact that the number of like the amount of resources that we have are limited but what if the the other uh, advanced civilization that developed they were not limited by this fact like the the essential resources that they require uh, were not that limited so for example energy and all so that probably yeah. true that they won't be like uh, they won't have these weird qualities that we have no 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 resource limitation is actually not a thing there were there was this set of experiments kind of uh, uh, done by some guy in i don't know america americans so this is uh, this was the experiment he constructed a rat utopia it was calculated that was the idea he actually dug a huge pit it it was ca- he calculated theoretically that a uh, comfortably it could house like 4000 rats mm. and then he brought in like 12 or something breeding pairs and just let them live it turned out that the population never crossed like 400 to 800 and probably like it was it was at least one order of magnitude below and the and the the way this happened was simply because that the population did not equally spread out across the whole area they were close uh, clustered places which he called cities no but that's See, what he is saying that's a limitation the, the, like the entire problem is the fact that you are taking an organism that has evolved in a uh, like an in an environment where resources resources were limited and now you are putting it in a new environment no but that's the thing right if it were a perfectly rational rat then they would spread out and multiply mm-hmm. more the thing is they are not perfectly rational rats no no by perfectly rational i want to clarify what are they extremizing for are See, they extremizing this is, this for the, the survival yeah like this this can be thought of as the inverse problem for humanity <laughs> like if humans are the advanced civilizations and we know that any like one way of thinking about any intelligent Uh, life form or any intelligent thing is the fact that it is optimizing for something so what is like the inverse problem for humanity is what are we optimizing for That's you see okay let, let us like modify game theory to this we have usually assuming what we assume is there are n players mm-hmm. and each player just extremizes gains to himself but suppose i consider a tiny a uh, correction to this suppose each player is such that he not just extremizes gains to himself but to his nearest neighbors in such a that's way that's the nash equilibrium yeah right. but see no no his nearest neighbors not game, to the whole society see, game theory is a fraud uh, like, <laughs> uh, like for okay. the okay okay it's, <coughs> it's a scam because one thing is that there is like uh, you never have an so you don't ever have an idea about what like see the reason i call it a scam is the fact that the game itself is not very well defined in any case so mm. you can rationalize some situations where you have a very good idea about what the game is for example there are prisoners dilemma where the game is simple you are in a prison simple and so the payoffs are clear yeah, and, and everything is clear mm. so you you can write down a very uh, like good 
whatever your game theoretic structure you have mm-hmm. but the point is in a, if you want to uh, explain something in uh, a real human interaction or any animal interaction anything you do not have a real idea about what the payoffs are what's the game and what are the things they're trying to optimize for and whether the game is a single game or whether it's an iterated game or anything okay suppose we assume so, this the thing we're optimizing for is simply the existence itself basically darwin's idea of evolution the idea is simply this the every organism lives for a finite amount of time mm-hmm. and but are we optimizing for just survival because if we were just optimizing for survival then we would have stopped at some particular past in the yeah. animal history yeah. we would not have probably <coughs> progressed and become this intelligent essentially so one conspiracy <coughs> theory is that what humans are trying to optimize for is like technology because we sort of know that every year we want like new and fast and more advanced technology why is it that we want technology what is it about technology that we want no one knows but we sort of know that we like technology the thing is i think it's like this if people were perfectly rational or if everybody took <coughs> perfectly rational decisions then the number of perfectly rational decisions is very limited and if people are you know inherently irrational then this automatically introduces a lot of complexity just because there is a unique way to be rational <laughs> but there are infinitely many ways to be not rational right. and it's basically like the argument for why time flows in the forward direction right the number of configurations uh, you know where entropy Mm-hmm. Uh, decreases is much smaller than the one where entropy increases yeah, yeah, so it's exactly oh, that okay. argument if everybody was uh, perfectly rational then there would be no complexity because the answers are always well defined and clear but that's like an anthropic solution to this yeah ki why like because like it's just saying that since we have a lot of complexity here it means we must have been like we i mean it makes sense that we are not irrational but i think another problem is that how do you know what is a rational decision in no i like yeah. again this assuming you are irrational beings how do you know you'll be able to right. come across a definition of what's perfectly rational so that's like that these are these paradox questions yeah. that you always get tripped about but my point is that this inverse problem the uh, like one thing that we sort of know for sure at least is that humans might be optimizing for more and advanced technology now what might be like why is it that we want this technology no one knows but then the conspiracy theory is that the reason we are like we keep on developing all this new technology for no apparent reason is the fact that at some point in the future we are going to merge with this technology and become some super advanced civilization and then essentially we are going to become the aliens so we are building this like we are like this caterpillar building this cocoon we do not have any idea why we are building this but then one day we will become this uh, weird butterfly these aliens super advanced civilizations perfectly rational i think chetan needs to stop watching chorogan no guy no i am a big believer in aliens aliens if you are listening to this podcast <laughs> there is a man who would like to join your ranks. i i would like to smoke a joint with the aliens whoever these are yeah how I'll long take a ride in their ufo <laughs> <laughs> that would be the perfect uh, gosh how long has this been more than an hour i guess an hour and a half I was going to talk about me on G minus 2 but I think this has become a little too long. We should yeah, probably save that for later. We don't have anything to do in life. So let me quickly summarize the G minus 2 thing just for completeness otherwise I'll forget. Hmm. So uh, the thing is in 2004 so I mean the G minus 2 for a muon or an electron or something is basically okay in language of field theory it's obtained by calculating the vertex function or right. uh, to you know any order you like. and in 2004 uh, brookhaven national laboratories they measured this um, so there's two ways to calculate this 
One is, the thing is, if you want to account for loop corrections to the QED vertex, now the QED vertex is simple enough, it's just Gangami, but if you want to calculate loop corrections, now the question is, what are the couplings uh, that you need to consider? And QED loop corrections have been calculated to like a lot of loops and people know these things very exactly. But the problem uh, happens when you look at hadron polarization diagrams because these are non-perturbative, you cannot calculate them analytically. So what people do is they use, you know, basically optical theorem and they extract this polarization vacuum, vacuum polarization for hadrons. This from uh, actually tree level scattering data for uh, E minus E plus two hadrons. So basically you have like a, let's say you have a photon, there's a hadron loop and then there's another photon. Uh, this and you know, the external legs for these photons are basically fermions. Now, if you cut through this diagram in the middle using your Kutkowski rules or whatever, then this is basically the cross-section for E plus E minus two hadrons. The, and so you can measure this and square it and you'll get the vacuum polarization diagram. Now, the thing is, um, this data gives you a certain number and then Brookhaven National Laboratory, they computed it um, and the, they, like, they measured it and they got a very different number. And there was the, the discrepancy between these numbers was significant enough. I mean, they agreed to a very large extent. But the thing is, the experiments these days are so precise that, you know, if something doesn't agree after like two decimal places, you can sort of be confident that there is something new. Mm. So people, were st people started looking for new physics solutions to, you know, solve this discrepancy, assuming this E plus E minus data is correct. So that, that is key. People until now assume that this E plus E minus data is correct. And then there is some new physics that directly couples to your fermions in the sense that you're not looking at corrections to the vertex factor from these hadron loops and whatever. There are extra corrections coming from just new physics. Mm. Not new physics which, which contributes to hadron polarization. Just new physics from at the vertex. Right. You know, like a leptoquark or something. Mm. And, uh, and this is in principle not a very difficult problem to solve. You just write some EFT and you find you know, all, its, uh, all its parameters to fit the G-2 experiments. But very recently, a lot of groups across the world uh, did calculations using lattice QCD. And so they basically put the standard model on a lattice and they calculated this hadron, uh, hadron polarization diagram. And they found that even the standard model calculation computed using these lattice approaches, which is supposed to be very powerful, mm. has a very significant disagreement with the experiment E plus E minus two hadrons cross-section data. Mm. And so this basically is telling you that if both of these things are correct, like both the experimental data is correct and the lattice calculation is correct, then the experiment is seeing some new physics. So there is some new physics hidden in E plus E minus two hadron cross-sections. And, um, okay, one, one small remark, because we talked of string theory earlier. Something that I used to think about was, um, when you look at E plus E minus two hadrons, you look at this cross-section, let's say you're just looking at it in, you know, standard model. Mm -hmm. Then you, standard model doesn't really tell you, you know, couplings to hadrons. It tells you couplings to quarks or whatever. So if you write diagrams, you'll have diagrams E plus E minus two quarks and so on. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, in experiments, you never see free quarks. Mm -hmm. You always see hadrons. Now the question is, let's say you have, you know, something that is uh, just coupling to U quarks. Let's say you have a leptoquark mm. and uh, there's an electron that's just coupling to U quarks. Mm. <clears throat> then there are no D quarks in E plus E minus scatterings at all. Mm. But for a hadron, you need like D because uh, hadrons are basically U, D, zero. I mean, they're, they're U, D and linear combinations of U, D. Mm. So how do you see hadrons when the interaction is just, you know, between U and E quarks? Right. And the thing is, when these quarks are actually emitted at the other vertex, as they, you know, scatter out in space, the distance between them increases and the nature of the strong force is such that the potential between them increases with the distance. Right. That's the whole point. And now this potential increases sufficiently largely enough to produce like 
uh, a virtual particle anti particle pair like excite a virtual mm. anti particle particle pair for d d quarks mm. and so then you this d quark this this quark produced from the vacuum uh, basically combines with the u quarks to gives you hadrons so everything is consistent but that's just a little aside <clears throat> but the thing is so now you look at this and the interesting thing is this e plus e minus 2 hadrons data is actually smaller than the lattice computation mm. so what this is saying is that this new physics is not adding to standard model contribution mm. it's actually subtracting from the standard model contribution mm. it has what you would call a negative interference with the standard model so it's something like this you have some amplitude a1 you have mm. some amplitude a2 now a1 plus a2 mod whole squared is some a1 a2 a squared plus a1 squared plus a2 squared plus 2 a1 a2 and this 2 a1 a2 if it's negative mm. then it's going to like swamp the positive contributions here and you'll right. get a negative uh, thing so the, the way to so this is what people these days call the new muon g minus 2 puzzle because until now it was the brookhaven results mi minus the experiment results mm. then fermilab confirmed uh, Brook, brookhaven results mm. and now lattice results again are in contradiction so this new new muon g minus 2 is just standard model versus experiment mm. with a negative interference now the thing is you can rule out any scalar interactions in the uv that can solve this for a very elegant reason and the point is this scalar interactions if they couple to the standard model vector current mm. they will necessarily be coupled by a derivative coupling just because of lorentz invariance mm. right if it's coupling to a vector current it will couple with a derivative coupling and the thing with this derivative coupling is you can just do an integration by parts on the scalar and shift this derivative to one of the fermions mm. and if it's shift and you shift it to one of the fermions then when you calculate your amplitudes everything will be proportional to electron masses mm. right because now it's proportional to momenta of the electrons which is mm. then goes on shell and electron masses in the chiral limit are, limit are super super small mm. so it's just incredibly suppressed by the chiral limit so no scalar particle can actually solve this new minus 2 new muon g minus 2 puzzle now so the next obvious thing to look for is like a universal coupling okay maybe not universal coupling because you can look for isospin breaking observables but you look at a z prime model mm. so a vector a, a a u1 vector or something and the thing is with this u1 vector you can actually consistently solve the new muon g minus 2 puzzle by constraining the parameter space for this theory mm -hmm. you know constraining the degree of isospin breaking and all of these things but now the very interesting thing is if you actually look at these constraints now z prime is a model that has been studied a lot because it's also a possible dark matter candidate mm -hmm. so there's a lot of constraints on uh, on 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 z prime for example a very simple constraint is decay of z minus 2 e plus e minus pairs you can there's a constraint on the coupling to of e minus e plus e minus to z prime which is very tight just because this decay has so lep2 is an experiment collider that's trying to measure it this decay has never been seen so it doesn't say there is no coupling it just puts a bound depending on the precision of your uh, instrument so these are very tight couplings the very tight uh, bounds and the thing is the constraints you see that you require for z prime model are inconsistent with at least two of three current uh data that we have on z prime mm. so there is lep2 that does this z prime to e plus e minus coupling there is uh, barber i think which does this isospin breaking kind of uh limit and then there is also something i forget i forget its name but uh there are basically three known constraints and the three can never simultaneously be satisfied mm. oh okay so you can satisfy two of them but the third one is always violated so mm. now it looks like even a z prime model is uh not sufficient to solve this new muon g minus 2 puzzle so nobody really knows what's going on you'll need some very exotic theories from now on because you've exhausted your two simplest cases mm. so i think it's pretty interesting i mean if, of course it's very phenomenological and there's no, i mean so it's so one like uh, thing that i'm not sure if it's resolved or not but i was once reading like uh, when these results came out 
I think the latest results they came out on the same day as the formula of results. Yeah, yeah, very cool. So which was when this uh, discrepancy was noted. But I think the point was that some people they tried this latest result for. Even the electron G minus two, and they found out the discrepancy there. Yeah, obviously there's a discrepancy everywhere. You do it for muons just because they're heavier and it's easier right. with muons. But uh, so the point is that in the case of muon, the uh, this uh, particular G minus two discrepancy is like greater than some five sigma or something. Yeah, four point two sigma. And in the case of electrons, it's like it's uh, less than a sigma or something. But the point is that if you consider this, uh, uh, so the difference comes when you consider regular QED results and the. This last lattice results and the mm. whatever experimental results. Mm. But if you do la- lattice calculation for QED, you again get the uh, some th- three four sigma problem in the case of QED also. But you know that if you do the same calculation without uh, this like uh, in not considering the lattice results, you get some very close agreement in the case of. No, electron. but you can never just look at look at just QED, right? Because the whole point is QED corrections have been calculated and subtracted off. It's only the hadron polarization that's the. Right. missing input but my so what i believed was that in the case of electron g minus 2 the hadron uh, i think the hadron contributions do not kick in until a lot like a no no but late. that's the thing that's the part we're trying to measure everything else qvd loops have been calculated anyway, i agree but in the case of uh, uh, electron g minus 2 it's the qvd loops that i think uh, whatever the 10 12 decimal place ka jo result mm-hmm. hamare paas it's only the qvd loops that contribute till that point hadron wala results are like too uh, like very suppressed and so uh, they probably do not even kick in until whatever precision the experiment has been performed that's why probably the electron uh, data works like uh, electron may koi there is no discrepancy but that's the reason why in the case of muon g minus 2 you are getting so much discrepancies because the hadron loops are contributing like much earlier than mm-hmm. so oh, no I actually think i think that makes sense this this okay this makes sense that this basically has to do because the so when you calculate these qvd loops mm-hmm. you have two kinds of contributions mm-hmm. something that's called a universal contribution and something that's called a, a non universal contribution basically mm-hmm. so when you calculate a vertex diagram let's say you fix your external x to be f- uh, electrons right. now there is some photon exchange here mm-hmm. now the thing is what are these other two fermion lines coming out of here mm-hmm. if they are muons or taons then this vertex factor will depend on logarithms of their masses right. and if these are just electrons then the logarithm is just i mean it's just one hmm. so that so this is an example of a universal contribution right. but non universal contributions for muons i think are much bigger than uh, those for electrons hmm. so so i think that uh, like some at least some group of people were complaining uh, like their their point was that it's probably there is no puzzle here the g minus 2 is not a puzzle but the fact that this lattice calculations are not being done correctly but that may be wrong I, no but I, a lot of people a lot of groups reproduce the lattice calculations and they all got the same answers more or less yeah so i mean i'm not very familiar with the uh, literature so mm. i may be very wrong here but again so this the interesting point here is that this universal thing that you're talking about it's exactly the iconal limit so mm. this iconal thing it works for uh, uh, regular vertex couplings and it works even at the level of form factors mm. so uh, this is actually a form factor calculation that mm. uh, this uh, vertex function that we're talking about yeah, yeah. the point is that uh, at the lowest energy limit the uh, the leading order term is always it's just independent upon what the rest of the structure inside the diagram is it just depends upon what's the particle being exchanged hmm. and that's where the universal factor is always the same but it's the uh, but when you start looking at the subleading terms it's when all this uh, like it's what tells you about the st- uh, real structure inside the diagram or whatever amplitude that you're looking at hmm. so uh, yeah, yeah i mean it's uh, interesting yeah. but i'm not sure about how the gvs to thing works 
I think this would be a good point to end this episode because we basically got back to the iconal limit that we started with and it's also 1 hour 42 43 minutes so Fuck. I think this is pretty fucking long but this was fun as always uh let's I think maybe in the next episode we can have a more science fiction discussion because <laughs> I think people are probably getting sick of Shrinil <laughs> Shrinil yeah I'll talk to him yeah. uh, I'll 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 talk to him I'll buy him Pepsi or something <laughs> but yeah we yeah. should yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll still be... head back to the MDP and... Yeah, we'll yeah. just end this podcast. We'll still keep talking, of course. But, um, so, yeah, for the purpose of this podcast, good night, people. Bye-bye.